So we're in the midst of uh, doing a small series on the Passion of Christ up to next week, Easter Sunday. And the Passion of the Cross, uh, the Passion of Christ, uh, the word passion is taken from the Latin term passion, which doesn't mean romance or feeling, it means suffering. And so we're looking at the sufferings of Christ this morning. And last year, on this very same week, we looked at the crucifixion. And we looked at it in a really raw and rugged way. We looked particularly at the body of Christ broken, the physicality, the brutality. Uh, but Matthew's account is, com- is very different than John's in some ways. There are no heartstrings being pulled in Matthew's account. Matthew's account is strictly factual. Uh, if you noticed, it just lays out the details of what happened. The wine giving, Simon of Cyrene, Elijah, the darkness, uh, the resurrection bodies, the temple curtains. He actually doesn't focus on Jesus hardly at all in this account. It's about the details mostly surrounding the cross of Christ. Uh, but the center of the passage is the only moment that he, he hones down in on Jesus himself. And it's when Christ calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we'll look at the passage just like that. First, we'll look at the, what Matthew's trying to tell us about the details and the details. And that's this, that the cross is foolishness. And then secondly, we'll hone down in on the center of the passage, on Jesus' words about being forsaken. And I think Matthew there is trying to show us that the cross is also the power of God. So the cross is foolishness and the cross is the power of God. So first, the cross is foolishness. Uh, of course, this phrase, the cross is foolishness or nonsense, it comes from 1 Corinthians 1 and it comes from Paul. And Paul says that the word of the cross is nonsense to those who are perishing. But for those who are being saved... It's the power of God. Uh, What does he mean? Well, he doesn't just say that the cross is nonsense to those who are perishing. He literally says the word of the cross. And in Greek, that little word is the word logos, the logos of the cross. And there's two senses to what he probably means. One is that literally the message of the cross is nonsense to those who are perishing. In other words, the words themselves, the gospel, preaching the gospel, it's nonsense, sounds silly. To nonsensical to, to those who are perishing. Uh, but there's a further meaning. And that's, it's not just the words of the gospel are nonsense, but he's specifically referring to the logos of the cross being nonsense. And we know from John chapter 1 that the logos of the cross, the logos is Jesus Christ. It's the person of Christ. Uh, that's who the logos is. It's the communication, the word of God. And so what Paul's getting at here is that it's not just the gospel that's, that's silly or folly to those who are perishing, but it's the man. It's, it's Jesus Christ himself on the cross. He is the foolishness. He is the silly one. He's the nonsensical one to those who are perishing. And that's exactly what Matthew is getting at in the details in this passage. If you, if you looked at the passage carefully, you'll notice that what's central to all the details in the passage is the mockery. It was the mo- it's the mocking that's so central, and it occurs at four different levels in this passage. The first way it occurs, even a verse before we started reading this morning, is that the Roman soldiers are the first to mock him. In verse 31, it says, after they mocked him, they put on a purple robe, they put a crown of thorns on his head. But it goes on, they then made, in verse 32, Simon of Cyrene carry his crossbeam. Now, th- this is actually a way of mocking Jesus. Because every single person who's crucified by the Roman crucifixion, 
is forced to carry their own crossbeam. That's just normal standard operating procedure. But this man can't do it, and that's what they're saying. Somebody else will carry it for you. Why? Because they're suggesting that he's weak. They're suggesting he's weak. But it goes on. Verse 35, they ripped his garments off of him, and then they cast lots for them. And every single painting, maybe, that you've seen of Jesus on the cross from the Middle Ages or the Renaissance or whatever is, is uh, false in the sense that most of the time they put a loincloth on Christ on the cross. But there was no loincloth. Jesus Christ is absolutely naked on the cross. He's not wearing anything. Uh, it was typical in the procedure that women would be crucified facing the cross as an act of modesty. Okay, After they've beaten them and, and hung them on a cross, they would at least give them the decency to face the cross. Uh, but men, no, men were faced outward. Men were completely naked facing outward. And that's, Jesus is naked here. Uh, this is part of his humiliation, part of the scorn, the mockery. Uh, verse 37, they put up the sign, he's the king of the Jews. And of course, this is sarcasm, right? This is not being serious. They're joking uh, in this moment. But it's not just the soldiers who are mocking him. The second level of mockery comes from the civilians, the bystanders. So in verse 39, the people that are passing by typically what they would do is they would hang crosses. They would crucify people along a road, right? So it's people walking down a road, both Gentiles and Jews, because this is the week of the Passover, and they're hurling insults at him. But the word is actually more specific than the translators offer here in our English text. The word, the little word is called, is hey blasphemum, right? And you can hear it, blasphemum, blasphemy. They're not just mocking him, they're uttering blasphemies at him. Why are they doing that? Because they're thinking about his own claims, being the king of the Jews, the son of God, God incarnate. And they're, blas- they're reversing the claims and they're uttering blasphemies at him and saying, look at you now, basically, is the idea that's, that is getting across. Uh, further, after Jesus cries out to God, they think that he's possibly called out to Elijah. And what's going on there is that um, in Aramaic, the little, word, the little phrase, my God, my God, sounds like the same word for the proper name Elijah. So all that's happening there is they've misheard him as they're walking by. And when that happens, basically in verse uh, 49, a bunch of the people say, okay, let's sit back and see what happens. This guy, he's called out to Elijah. He thinks Elijah's going to come save him. And the idea is sit back and pass the popcorn. They're they're treating it like this is entertainment, like this is spectacle, right? Like this is going to the movies, it's a particular form of mockery. It's not just the Roman soldiers. It's not just the Gentile and Jewish civilians, civilians or bystanders. But thirdly, it's the chief priests and the authorities, of course. Uh, in verse 41, they join in. Save yourself, you fool. Save yourself. Are you the king? Come down from the cross if you're the king. And then the fourth and final level of mockery, <laughs> the criminals. In verse 44. It says that the ones that were being crucified next to him, they join in as well and begin to mock him. You see, the point is that at every single level of society is being represented here in this picture, and they're all doing the same thing. They're sarcastically mocking him. They're making fun of him. In other words, the suggestion Matthew is giving is the same thing that that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 1, and that's that to so many, the cross is nonsense. Uh, the Lagos, the man, he's a fool. Uh, he's, he's a God who is weak. He's not the king. He can't save himself. He can't carry his own cross beam. He's naked and he's ashamed. 
And that's the picture that Matthew's painting for us. Meet your king, right? That's what he's getting across. That's what the people think. Um, and John Stott, in his excellent book, The Cross of Christ, uh, he asked this question following, following Matthew. He, he says, What kind of a religion would have a God who dies in weakness at the hands of his own creatures? Uh, no matter whether the background was Roman or Jewish or both, the early enemies of Christianity, he says, lost no opportunity to ridicule the claim that God's anointed one, the Savior, ended his life on the cross. This idea was crazy in the Roman world. This is well illustrated by a graffito from the 2nd century, which has been discovered on, on a hill in Rome, and it's on the wall of a house, and most scholars consider this to be the first painting of Jesus being crucified uh, after his death in, in the early centuries. It's the first surviving picture of the crucifixion. And what is it? It's a caricature. It's a crude drawing that depicts a man stretched out on a cross with the head of a donkey. You see? And look, the, Paul, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 1 and what Matthew is painting a picture for us here doesn't stop in the early years. It's consistent throughout all of history that the cross is foolishness uh, it's both the response of religious and non-religious people throughout all of history. For instance, Islam rejects the, the idea of Jesus on the cross um, because it says that it's inappropriate. No prophet of God uh, could be crucified and killed in, in, in such a weak way. Um, and so what the typical idea in traditional Islam is that Jesus actually never did die on the cross. Uh, someone took his place before he was hung. Most of the time they say Simon of Cyrene actually was the one that was crucified. So Jesus was never actually killed. Um, so, but it's not just Islam. Gandhi, uh, the beloved Gandhi in 1894, um, he said this, I might accept Jesus as a martyr, as an embodiment of sacrifice, as a divine teacher, but not as the most perfect man ever born who died on a cross for the death of sin. His death on the cross might be a great example to the world, but that there is anything like a miraculous virtue in it, I will not accept that. Okay? But it's not just religious responses in modern history. It's also, uh, it's also non-religious responses. Probably the most important atheist that's ever lived is a guy by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche, who is a German philosopher who lived up to the early 20th century. And he wrote a very famous book called The Antichrist. And this is how he describes the cross. In the book, he says that human happiness is the feeling that power is increasing, right? Um, and, and so that means that the most harmful thing for human happiness is an active sympathy for the ill-constituted and the weak. And this means for Nietzsche that Christianity, above all, above all religions, above all ideas, above all philosophies, has taken the side of everything that's weak in the world. Everything that's base, everything that's ill-constituted, it is the religion of pity, he says. It preserves what is ripe for destruction, and it thwarts the laws of evolution. Uh, and he says, at the center of it all is a contemptuous God on a cross, weakness incarnate. Okay, so this is the religious and the non-religious, but you can see that in every part of history, both ancient and modern, the cross is foolishness, right? So today we hear the cross is unjust, it's cosmic child abuse, it's barbarism, it's ultimate weakness, it's a weak religion with a weak God at the center of it. It's foolishness. 
Paul nailed it in 1 Corinthians 18, 1.18. That's exactly what people, many, so many have thought about it throughout all of the centuries. And this is how Stott summarizes that whole picture up. He says, uh, he's reflecting on the fact that the Christians adopted the cross as a symbol of their identity in the early centuries of the church. And he says, the Christian's choice of a cross as the symbol of their faith is more surprising when we remember the horror with which crucifixion was regarded in the ancient world. We can understand why Paul's message of the cross was to many of his listeners utter foolishness and madness. How could any sane person worship as a God a dead man who's been justly condemned as a criminal and subjected to the most humiliating form of execution? This combination of death, crime, and shame puts him beyond the pale of respect, let alone the pale of worship. And so Stott asks, why would people cling to the cross? So that's point one, the foolishness of the cross. Why would people cling to the cross, the foolishness, the logos of God? And point two, the pow- because the cross, Paul tells us, is the power of God. So the cross is foolishness to some, but to those experiencing salvation, the cross is the power of God. Uh, why did so many cling to it? In the midst of this, this very same picture that so many have called the cross foolishness throughout all the centuries, the cross changed the world. The cross revolutionized life around the Mediterranean. Cro- the cross started a revolution. Uh, the cross has turned the world upside down. It's changed the entirety of our culture. Uh, all because of what happened here at Golgotha in the first century. And why is it? Where is the power? What is it about this that is the power of God that Paul's saying in the midst of a world that, that sees something so foolish and so weak hanging there on the cross? What is it? Well, first, w- what we know, what this means is that the cross, just like Jesus' life, is incredibly divisive, right? It's incredibly divisive. People come before the cross and they either bow in its shadow or they trip over it and stumble. It's always been incredibly divisive. The Romans, the Jews, the Gentiles, the criminals, the authorities, the bystanders, uh, Gandhi, Muhammad, and Friedrich Nietzsche all could not handle it. All could not, they stumbled over the cross, right? And you know what that means? That means at some level, in first encounter, the cross is foolishness to every single human being, to all of us. Uh, because, because just like they did in the first century, humans measure success, we measure achievement, we measure the idea of what it means to be powerful according to the cultural standards of our time, right? The Jews expected the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of the Jews, to come in, to march straight to Rome, to start a political revolution, and to take over, to restore the kingdom of God. That's what they expected, right? And it's the same exact expectation of the Son of God that Friedrich Nietzsche has, of of a modern man. He expects power. He expects competition. He expects revenge, right? He expects somebody to come in and take what's theirs, right? It's the basic notion of power that you see in a toddler. It's easy. It's simple, it's the notion that I'm going to get what's mine. It's the notion that's at the heart of every single human being. It's human nature. This is our idea of power, right? And so it's not surprising that at some level, every single human being in all of history has come up against the claims of the cross, come up against the man of power, and said, that's not power, that's weakness. That's foolishness, right? Because that's human nature. That's human nature. But the cross, the cross subverts all ideas Previous ideas in history of what it means to be powerful, of what it means to be strong, 
of what it might mean to be the Messiah. Uh, And what it says to us is that power, the power of the gospel, the power of God, is actually victory by losing. Victory by losing. Oh my. (laughs) What kind of power is this? Uh, Where is this power? So two things briefly about this power. What is this power? It's first the power of choice, and it's secondly the power of forgiveness. So first, the power of choice. Now, if you paid careful attention to the, the, to the text, and particularly to the mockings in the text, maybe you started to catch on that Matthew, just like Mark in his writing of the Passion, is intending this to be seen as ironic. Right? It's ironic. It's, it's not just supposed to come across at face value, but it's ir- ironic. Um, look, have you read the rest of the story? I bet you have. Uh, have you read this, the chapters that come after this one? Uh, just think about the mockery. Uh, the mockery is this from, from the Roman soldiers. Jesus, you said you're going to tear down the temple, and in three days you're going to build it back up again. Look at you now. Right, but y- did Nietzsche read the rest of the story? Did you read the rest of the story? Look, what happens in three days? The power, the man of God, the power of God on the cross, what does he do? He, he resurrects from... The dead, okay? Uh, of course, right? What does this mean? This means that the mockery is ironic because the cross, the man on the cross, the logos on the cross, he's there because he wants to be. You see? This is voluntary. He, the idea here that Matthew's painting is he's not being crucified. He's chosen to do this. It's not simply passive. He's commanding it. Uh, and he made that very clear. It wasn't a secret. That's, that's why they're able to mock him like this. Because the fact that he had determined this to be the case was not a secret, right? Uh, just listen to these verses. Uh, in Mark 9, the Son of Man, he had already predicted, will be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And in three days, he will rise again. Okay, Jesus said that. Just the chapter before this, as he's eating the Passover meal, with them, he says. He said to the disciples, Jesus said, Do you not know that the Son of Man is about to be handed over to, to crucifixion, to death? And the disciples respond by saying, No, no, not you, not the Son of Man. You can't go, you can't die, right? And this is what he said. Do you remember what he said, said to them? Do you not know that if I wanted, I could call upon my Father and he would send 12,000 angels to my aid in a moment? Right? Look, if you're willing to read the text, what you see here is this isn't, this isn't utter weakness. This is the man of power that's put himself on the cross. This is voluntary. This is voluntary condescension. It's iron- the mockery is ironic. And you don't even have to go to the end of the Gospel of Matthew to see that. You don't even have to go to the end all the way to the resurrection because it appears in our own text. You see, in verse, in verse 54, the centurion, the head of the soldiers there's an instance where Matthew's offering us something of a tragic humor episode. Because what happens when Jesus commits himself to the Father, when he gives up his spirit, all of a sudden there's an earthquake. Rocks split open. Darkness descends over the land. People that had once been dead are now walking around in the city. And the curtain's temple is torn in two. And the centurion is reflecting on all this in this moment. And he says, this must have actually been the Son of God. You see, it's ironic. It's, a tra- it's tragic humor. Look, they crucify a lot of people. 
in the ancient Near East, in the first century. And nothing like this picture ever happens. Nobody else that they had ever crucified had ever, at the moment of his death, split rocks open, caused an earthquake, caused resurrected bodies to appear in the city of Jerusalem. It had never happened before, right? This is not, this is not the normal death of a man being crucified, and that's because this is voluntary condescension. God become man. In other words, Jesus let death swallow him so that he could destroy death from the inside out. That's the purpose. That's the point, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing, and the final thing, is the power of forgiveness. And most important, the power of forgiveness. At the very center of this passage is the cry, Jesus' cry in Aramaic, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the, the, common, the translators won't quite go far enough with what, what's happening here because it's not a, it's not a cry. Um, the, the word that's used there for Jesus' voice, the sound of his voice, is that's the only time that word ever appears in the t- entirety of the Bible. And it's much more, in English, the best thing we can do with it is just to say, a uh, miserable scream. It's loud, it's torturous, it's despondent, okay? It's not just a cry, um, it's, it's a scream, it's torturous. And uh, one of the things to notice that is that, look, if you're trying to perpetuate belief in Jesus Christ, a, a man who was crucified on a cross as the Messiah, as the Son of God in the first century, what you don't do is you don't include this episode. You don't include the part where Jesus all of a sudden cries out in despondent misery in Aramaic. Why have I been forsaken? Right? That, it, doesn't, it doesn't look like power. It looks like weakness, right? And why is it there? Because it happened. The, the only way we can account for this being in, in the text is that it happened. And that they're trying to give a true account of precisely what took place. Uh, it happened. Now, now this, this is not... When, uh, when, when people in the past have thought a lot about this, people like Nietzsche and others, and they've looked at this, the forsaken son... Jesus Christ being forsaken at the cross and, and said basically, you see, this is foolishness. His own father gave him up. This is, this is, this is proof. This is what it looks like for Christianity to, to, to be broken, to not work, right? But first, this is not a plan going wrong, okay? Because what's happening here actually is that this is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, okay? When Jesus cries out and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting He's quoting from Psalm chapter 22. And, this is, and Psalm chapter 22 is a psalm of David. And just like all the psalms of David, when David writes a psalm, when he writes a prayer, he's typically talking about something that's happening in his own life. Something bad has happened to him, and he's praying. He's grieving over it. And, but this, this psalm, Psalm 22, is unusual. And Old Testament scholars will talk about this a lot. They'll say, look, for all the other Psalms of David, we can figure out exactly what it was that David was so upset about that was causing him to write these prayers and these Psalms, but not Psalm 22. Because in Psalm 22, he says things like this, um, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, my garments have been stripped from me. My bones have been broken. My heart is melted. You laid me in dust. You've laid me down in the ashes of death. Uh, this never happened to David. He, there was no experience in David that makes sense of this, right? It's prophetic. 
It's Christological, you see. What it means is that when Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the fulfillment of the gospel that was preached beforehand. This is the God who has the power over history, you see. This has been prophesied of old. Um, But even more than that, secondly, what does this mean? What does it mean? What does it mean for Jesus to cry out, for for the Father to have forsaken the Son? What does that mean? Um, This is impossible to penetrate into. Uh, To suppose that we can get at what it means for the Son to be forsaken by the Father. It's a cliff that we cannot jump over. Um, But the image that we're given in the passage is that as soon as this happens, darkness descends upon the land. And again, what's happening there? This is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Uh, you see, any time in the Old Testament that God showed his wrath uh, on, on a numerous occasions, he would blot out the sun. He would cover the sun. And hell is often described, or Hades in the Old Testament, as the place of outer darkness. And you see, what we're being given in this passage is a physical manifestation of what it might have been like for the sun to be forsaken. It's utter darkness. What it's saying to us in this moment when things become dark is it's saying that this is the sun entering into the hell of hells. Uh, and this makes sense, and here's why. When Jesus says the words, my God, my God, this is the language of the covenant. My God, you see, God had come to Abraham in the Old Testament, and he has said, I will choose you, and you will be my people. I will make out of you a great nation, and I will say to you, you will be my people. You will call me my God, right? The people are to say, my God, and I will say back to you, God says, my people. This is the language of the covenant. And when God made the covenant, he said to the people of Israel and to the people that it, it actually applies to everyone who's ever been created uh, as children of God, do this, obey me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Live under my commandments. Keep the Torah. Do what I've commanded you and love me and you will live and you will be blessed, right? And what happened? You know, if you've read many of the stories in the Old Testament, you know that time after time, time after time, the people cry out, my God, my God, but it's not because they deserve it. Every single time they fall, every single time they break their promise, every single time they break the covenant. And you see what's happening here. Jesus Christ is the only man under heaven who ever entered into this world and obeyed perfectly. He's the only man who ever came into this world and did exactly what he was supposed to do, who obeyed the law, who loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's the only one who's ever done it. And that means that he's the only man in history who ever had the right to actually say, my God, my God. He's the only one who ever actually could say, you truly are my Father, my God, and had the right to do so based on his own perfection. But the only one who ever had the right to do it, at the time that he does it, instead of hearing, you are my son, all he gets is the deafening silence of the divine wrath. You see, why? Because he stood in our place. What's happening here is the power of forgiveness. The God-man standing in our place. Uh, look, this is, this is so anti modern and so not popular and so controversial for me to say in the 21st century world but what the cross is demanding and why it's so hard to look at the cross as anything else but foolishness 
is because what the cross is demanding of every single human being in the entirety of the world when they face up to it, when they come up against it, is, to, is for them to recognize that they are guilty, that they stand before God as a sinner deserving of the wrath of God. And that's what makes it so difficult to say power of God instead of foolishness, right? It's so much easier to say foolishness because foolishness doesn't require you to determine yourself to be guilty. But that's exactly what the cross is. The cross is the pronouncement to every single human being that you are guilty and at the same time that you are loved incomprehensibly. But in order to get the second half, the love incomprehensible, you have to face up to who you are. You have to face up to your guilt. I was listening to a pastor recently talk about a story of a man who had committed adultery and uh, he had cheated on his wife and he came to a a kind of a typical modern therapist and he was talking to the therapist and they knew each other well. And he said, um, you know, I've I've cheated on my wife. Uh, It's happened more than once. And the problem is most of all, I don't feel guilty. And uh, she, she said, well, what's so wrong? What's the problem? Um, This is beautiful. This is a gift. This is freedom. If you don't feel guilty, that means you're not constrained by the relationship. It means you don't have to be burdened. It means you can let go. It means you can move on. If if you don't feel, if you don't have a feeling of guilt, then what's to hold you back, right? You can do what you want, right? And this is what the guy said to her. He said, I get what you're saying, but actually, I thought that that's what it would be for me, but actually it makes me despair that I don't feel guilty. And he said, the sense of guilt is all that I had left to tell me that there was something above me that actually mattered, that there there was a good that existed above me, something transcendent that could actually call me out of my weakness, right? You see, the sense of guilt for us moderns, for us 21st century people, is one of the last things we have left in our culture that actually affirms for us that there is a transcendent God. You see, as much as we hate to feel guilty, Guilt points you to the fact that there is truly a good outside of you, a transcendent, a a standard, a perfection, something that is making demands of you from the outside. And at the same time, what guilt says to us is that there may actually be hope that somewhere, somehow, somebody is perfect. Maybe there's hope that we can get out of this mess, right? That's what the, the sense and the feeling of guilt says to us. Christianity's answer is that that answer is the logos of the cross, which is foolishness and power. The man, the man of power on the right, he is the answer to this great problem. It's called the great exchange. C.S. Lewis calls it that. He who knew no sin became sin for us, you see. So that, and here's the second half of the exchange, while we were still sinners, we became righteousness in God. It's the great exchange. He for me, I for him. He bore my sin so that I get his righteousness. Um, Look, we'll just close with this. We're out of time. It's so important to know and to remember here the difficult truth that Jesus is not wearing anything on the cross, uh, that he's naked and that he's ashamed. Why? This is an image and a picture of what it means for him to be forsaken. Because what he's doing here is he's putting on exactly what Adam bore in his sin. You see, the picture of what it means to be a sinner in the very first moment of the curse is what? It's to be naked. It's to be naked and ashamed. It's to realize that this is not right. Something is wrong with me. 
And that Jesus Christ is the second Adam. He's the last Adam. He bore everything that Adam merited in his sin so that we could have his righteousness. Only the God-man could possess a power like this, the power of forgiveness. Nietzsche was so wrong, you see, so wrong. Um, why did he do it? Why did he do it? It's not enough to simply say, and we're actually closing with this, it's not enough to simply say uh, he did it for the forgiveness of sins. It's not, that's actually not enough. That's the legal aspect of the cross, and that's so beautiful and so true. His guilt, our guilt uh, born in him, we get his righteousness. That's the legal aspect, but there's more. Why did he do it? You get this, the slightest image of why when the temple curtain is torn in two. You see, the temple meant that God's presence on this earth is restricted. It's isolated. Not because he doesn't have the power to be everywhere. He does. But because of sin, because of curse, he only comes down and meets humanity in one place. That's the covenant. What's happening here is that when the temple is torn in two at the cross of Christ, it's an announcement that God came to make his presence universal with human beings, all of humanity, all over the place, all the time. You see the point? He didn't just come to be the legal representative for your sins. Yes, he did that. He came for you. Not just for your sin, but for you as a person. He came to get you, you see? And so every time you come up against the cross, what you have to say, what you have to tell yourself is you have to use two little words. You have to say, for me. What is this? What is the verberatio? The flagellation, the, the, the beating with a whip, with shards of bone and metal. What is the naked crucifixion with splinters upon his back? What is the suffocation that he underwent? It's physical brutality. It's for me. But even more, he went into the hell of hells, the abyss of the abyss, forsaken by the Father, total exile. Why? The answer, for me. You have to say it to yourself, for me. And so this week, um, this week in our tradition, we, and I promise this is literally the closing. Um, this week in our tradition, we say in our tradition, every single Sunday is Easter. Jesus Christ is alive. He died once for sins. And at the same time, the world and the church in the world and our culture sees a, a specific date for Easter every every year that, that, that the world recognizes. Um, it's a celebration of, spring, of winter turned to spring, of resurrection. Uh, and, and that's okay. Um, and, we, and at the same time, we profess every, every Sunday is Easter, right? But this week does offer you an opportunity to reflect. Um, it is a sacred week by so many across the world. And even when children who, don't, who think that this is foolishness or don't know about it at all, you know, they pick up that Easter egg, they draw some bunny on, on, a, on a sheet of paper somewhere at some park or something. Maybe just for a moment, just like at Christmas time, they'll put down the reflection on the egg and they'll think, what is this image of the stone rolled away of, of the cross? What does this mean? And they'll ask their parents. And the answer is that Jesus Christ is for us. He's for the world. He, he came for sinners. So I invite you to reflect this week on the cross for me, for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the crucifixion, for the death of the Son of God, because in him we have been made righteous if we would only see our guilt and believe. Lord, we ask that whether we've listened to the gospel once or a million times, 
that you would awaken us to the fact of the power of God. It's unbelievable. There's nothing like it. It's never been replicated. No one has ever come close to being the power of forgiveness that Jesus Christ is for us. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to own it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.